0: Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's episode is not a continuation of our COVID-19 series. As companies wrap up their quarterly reporting, we won't be spending quite as much time covering the crisis. However, when there is something new to cover, we'll be on it. So don't worry. So for today, LIBOR is expected to be discontinued in the near future And it's important for companies to start planning. Joining me remotely to answer all my questions are PwC partners, Brian Staniszewski and Nick Malone. Brian and Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. I thought this was a good topic to bring to our listeners, for them to look forward. And after they get through the first key reporting, this would be a good place to turn. And um, Brian, if you can share with us a little more about the new standard um, and its scope.
1: Before getting into the scope of the guidance, let me just try to highlight quickly the overall objective, just to bring a little bit more context into our discussion. Um, so over the past year or so, the FASB is pretty proactive in reaching out to stakeholders to understand some of the potential operational challenges and costs and applying fine gap to what would be a pretty significant volume of contracts and other transactions that would be impacted by the discontinued supply board. The outreach allowed the FASB to really understand some of the pressure points and in turn issue final guidance that essentially provides a temporary optional accounting release model that can be applied to, for example, contracts or hedging relationships that will be affected by this market-wide shift away from LIBOR to another alternative reference rate. The final guidance was issued on March 12th, and it was issued through Accounting Standards Update 2020-4, which is codified in Topic 848. So this guidance is optional and can be applied by all entities that meet the scope and criteria. For the scope, it's limited to contracts or hedging relationships or other transactions that reference LIBOR or another reference rate expected to be discontinued. If you have a contract in to, for example, the fed funds rate, it would not be included within the scope of the schedule. This I be included within the scope, other reference rates expected to be discontinued to allow for judgment to be applied. There may be other reference rates or interest rates uh, in addition to LIBOR that will be discontinued when LIBOR is discontinued. So you may be asking, you know, how do I how do I know if an interest rate is expected to be continued? Well, it's going to require judgment. And the FASB I think anticipated this, so they included a few indicators in the guidance to help in making this judgment. And a couple of examples include uh, a public statement by the administrator of a reference rate or initiatives by a significant number of market participants to move away from a particular reference rate. So the overarching gating criteria to be within the scope of this guidance is having a contract or a derivative or some other transaction that references LIBOR or another reference rate expected to be discontinued. However, in order to apply the various optional expedients and exceptions to GAP provided under this guidance, there are other criteria that needs to be satisfied. For example, the guidance would only apply to contract modifications that are deemed related to the replacement of LIBOR. But would not apply if there are terms that are being modified that are deemed to be unrelated to the replacement of board.
0: Okay, so then I guess I have a couple follow up questions, Brian. First of all, is this applicable on a contract by contract basis? So you could have to some contracts you're changing, but not others.
1: It depends on what area of the guidance you're in. So with hedging, with hedge accounting, it is on a individual hedging relationship basis. So there's no requirement to be similar. Uh, to apply similar expedience for similar hedges. I think that's not the case as it relates to contract modifications where there is a requirement if you are modifying an instrument that's within the scope of, for instance, Topic 470. I think you would need to be consistent when other modifications that meet the scoping criteria when applying this guidance. So there is a a requirement with similar modifications when you're in certain areas of the guidance versus like hedge counting.
0: Okay, so definitely something to focus on. And then kind of touches on my other question, which is what are some examples of modifications people might make that aren't related to this? So, okay, I'm modifying my contract because LIBRA is going away, but you're seeing that where there's an expectation that people may make other modifications? Well, if I, and I think, you know, we
1: have, I don't think we've seen a lot of these in practice right now because I think there's been other things on most of these minds. But if, if you're dealing with a modification where, you know, someone opens up a debt arrangement and, and resets the credit spread based on kind of a, uh, the credit spread of the debtor either increasing or decreasing, or does other changes that are considered um, more of a business decision as opposed to uh, a modification related to replacing LIBOR um, with some other rate like the secured overnight financing rate. Then I think that's where the guidance would say you're not you're not within the scope of this guidance. You have to actually go through and assess whether the modification results in a new contract or a continuation of your existing contract.
0: Okay, I think that's a helpful clarification. So then, and also a good lead into to our next topic, which I'm going to turn to you, Nick. And it would be helpful if you could elaborate on some of the optional expedients that are available for contract modifications, and then in particular, maybe hone in on areas where judgment may be needed in evaluating whether a modification qualifies for the optional expedients under the guidance.
2: Sure, thanks, Heather. I think that there are obviously many, many contracts that are currently outstanding that reference LIBOR. Um, and as part of the transition away from LIBOR, uh, a lot of companies are looking to amend some of those existing contracts, uh, you know, for example, by amending the index in a variable rate debt instrument from LIBOR to SOFR. Typically, when you go into a contract in the middle of its life and amend its contractual terms, there are potential financial reporting impacts to that. So what the guidance in topic 848 was meant to do was at a high level provide entities with the ability to conclude that a modification that that directly replaces or has the potential to replace a reference rate um, is just a continuation of that contract as opposed to an extinguishment and creation of a new contract. And companies can make that conclusion without having to perform an assessment uh, that would otherwise be be required by GAP. Um, The one thing to note here, though, is uh, there is a scope to the relief. Uh, You know, for example, a company can't simply re-underwrite a loan Uh, and qualify for the relief, but the relief is also broader than simply changing the interest rate index from LIBOR to SOFR and determining what amendments are related to or are a result of reference rate form uh, is certainly an area that's going to require a lot of judgment practice. So specifically, the scope of the relief is for contract modifications that either directly replace or has the potential to replace a reference rate That's expected to be discontinued as a result of reference rate reform. Um, That's point one. And point two um, is that the amendment does not modify a term uh, that changes or has the potential to change the amount or timing of the cash flows uh, where that change is unrelated to the replacement of a reference rate. Um, So when you look at the guidance, it references uh, specifically several uh, types of instruments. So it talks about loans, debt securities, and other receivables that are under topic 310 on the asset side. It talks about borrowings and other financing arrangements under topic 470 on the liability side. And it also has some guidance related to leases pursuant to topic 840 and 842. So for the assets and liabilities that I just mentioned, an entity would, count, would account for an amendment as if it was a minor modification or as if it was the modification was not substantial. Uh, in other words, it would just be treated as a continuation of the existing contract. Uh, and as a result, What that means from from a financial reporting perspective is that the amortized cost basis remains unchanged, Uh, a new effective yield is established based upon the amortized cost and the revised cash flows, and there's no gain or loss that's recognized. Um, Specific to leases, what this means is that an entity would not reassess lease classification, reassess the discount rate, or remeasure lease payments. So again, it would simply be treated as a continuation of the existing contract.
0: Just in listening to you and understanding at a high level some of what's going to be required to qualify for this um, relief that was provided by the FASB, to the extent that a company is focused and wants to make sure from an accounting perspective they get this relief, it's going to be important for the accountants to be working with Treasury and others who are involved in modifying the contracts.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we're seeing in practice uh, at a number of our clients that have you know ongoing live war transition programs is that nexus where the business and the accountants are talking and constantly in communication. Um, I think you're exactly right. we We almost see sort of matrices where by product type, what are the changes that the business either thinks they have to make or they might make and working with the accountants to figure out what the financial reporting impacts might be to that to see if, if they qualify for the relief or not.
0: Yep. And I guess it's a point we've made in prior podcasts, which is that we are definitely not suggesting you should make a business decision based on accounting, but it's more so just to make sure people understand that accounting impacts as they're making these various business decisions. So then with that, why don't we move on to our next topic, which is I'd like to focus in a little bit more on hedging relationships. And I think this is one of the areas that companies may not have initially focused on as being significantly impacted by LIBOR, but that may be um, due to changes in their instruments. So, Brian, can you share any insight in, on how the FASB guidance will provide relief on hedging relationships that may be impacted by the discontinuation of LIBOR?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with. There's a lot of hedging optional expedients that are provided under the guidance in Topic 848. Before getting into those, it might just be helpful to highlight. There's limitations for any of the entities, so non-public business entities that have not yet adopted the FASB's Targeted Improvement ASU 2017-12. There are limitations in the in the standard and the guidance that uh, kind of limit a little bit of what you can adopt, um, which I'll cover in detail, but just did want to highlight that this do exist. So, if you fall within that bucket, you might want to make sure you understand which limitations are out there right now. But at a high level, the optional expedients in the standard are designed to allow hedge accounting to continue without de-designation, despite making certain changes to the critical terms of the relationship due to this market-wide transition away from Ivor. Hedging optional expedients can be elected, When the hedging instrument, hedged item, or forecasted transaction references LIBOR or another reference rate expected to be discontinued. So that's kind of going back to the the scoping point that I made earlier. There's a lot of optionality in how these expedients can be elected. For instance, they can be elected on individual hedging relationships, so there's no need to be similar with similar hedges. Uh, And there's multiple option expedients that can be elected over different reporting periods for the same hedging relationship. Another point to highlight is that the type of hedge designation may impact the optional expedients that can be elected under the guidance, as there are some optional expedients, um, for example, that can be elected for a cash flow hedge that cannot be elected for a fair value hedge. For instance, there are cash flow hedging expedients that allow for a change in the document method of assessing hedge effectiveness, and the guidance also provides for certain expedients that can be applied when assessing hedge effectiveness when either the hedging instrument or hedged item references LIBOR or a rate that is expected to be discontinued. Additionally, for cash flow hedges of LIBOR-based payments, the guidance states that an entity may continue to assert the hedge transaction probable of occurring, despite current efforts to discontinue LIBOR. In a fair value hedge, where the designated benchmark interest rate is LIBOR, the guidance allows for an entity to change the designated benchmark interest rate without de-designating the hedge if certain criteria are met. There's also an optional expedient for fair-value hedges, um, which is a fairly large one, to disregard certain items when applying the shortcut method, which is a method of assuming perfect hedge effectiveness. And there's also an expedient that allows the entity to change its systematic and rational method for recognizing the earnings impact of excluded components. And this expedient is available for all eligible hedges, regardless of the type of hedge designation. So there's a lot of expedients that can be elected for fair value hedges, cash flow hedges, or net investment hedges, which I won't cover in detail, but did want to highlight that they do exist and can alleviate some of the operational burden related to this transition away from LIBOR to another alternative reference rate. And one one last point worth mentioning is that the guidance does require an entity to update its hedge documentation on electing an optional expedient under Topic 848. And from a timing perspective, this update needs to take place no later than when an entity is required to perform its first assessment of hedge effectiveness after electing the optional expedient.
0: Okay. I have some questions for you on your last point, but I think we're going to get to transition at the end. So I'll hold that. Um, So one question for you, Brian, is something uh, that you said earlier, which is that you stated that the guidance says an entity may continue to assert a hedge transaction is probable of occurring, although we know that there's current Um, efforts to eliminate LIBOR. So is that from the point in time from, say, now until their actual transaction changes? Or or what period does that cover?
1: For a company that has uh, an existing, for example, cash flow hedge, and that cash flow hedge involves forecasted transaction that is related to, let's just say, three-month LIBOR payments going out into the future. Well, one of the underlying foundations of cash flow hedging is you need to continue to assert that the forecasted transaction is probable but occurring. If everyone is in this process of discontinuing LIBOR, it kind of goes contrary to saying, I'm standing here today saying it's probable that my mm-hmm. forecasted transaction of LIBOR-based payments will will take place. So I think what the guidance was clarifying in order to like continue hedge accounting was to say, all right, well, despite these efforts that are underway to discontinue LIBOR and have it replaced with a different rate, you can continue to assert that your hedged item is probable. So basically, it's another way of saying, we're not going to have that cause you to discontinue the hedging relationship. You can continue the hedge. And once you switch your forecasted transaction from live war to so or whatever it may be, then you update your hedge documentation and go about your business.
0: Okay. I think that's helpful. And I guess maybe the other point, this whole topic of hedging is that to the point you made, Or there are a number of different expedients and it's going to be very specific to your particular types of hedges and your specific facts. And so it will be important for companies to get in and look at these expedients um, early so that they can start to think about how they match up with their various hedging relationships.
1: The earlier the better just understand what options are available and how those can be used to alleviate some of the pressure when administering a hedge that is going to be affected by live war i think uh, i think it's better to get, get get your head wrapped around how the guidance will work
0: Thank you. So then with that, Nick, I'd like to turn back to you. So you and Brian have talked about two of the biggest areas, which would be contract modifications, and then specifically delving into hedge accounting. But what other reminders from a high level do you have for companies as they start to assess this new standard and the broader transition away from LIBOR?
2: Yeah, sure, Heather. So I think there's probably a few things want to want to highlight here. The first is that, you know, one of the interesting things about Topic 848 is that it has an ending. Um, so the relief can't be applied to contract modifications or hedging relationship after December 31st, 2022. I mean, so companies have a few years here to take advantage of the relief provided by the FASB before the guidance sunsets, and companies have to go back to you know what I'd call normal gap. And you know the reason that's important is because you know you, you for example, you may have a hedging relationship uh, where the, for example, the interest rate swap. Has switched from live water to sulfur, but the underlying hedged item has not yet. Um, and for a period of time, you get to take advantage of the relief and assume that that hedge is, is, is effective. But once this guidance sunsets, um, there is a, there's going to be a process of coming off of the relief and back into regular gap. And if when, when you come back into regular gap, there's still a mismatch between your, your hedged item and your hedging instrument you know, regular gap would pick that up in, in, in the effectiveness assessment and, and potentially the bookkeeping. So I think that sort of the discontinuance and the coming off of the release is something that uh, the companies want to keep an eye out for. You know, I know now it's really sort of getting onto the relief and taking advantage of some of the, the guidance that the FASB's provided. But so certainly, keep an, you know, we, we, we think it's prudent for companies to keep an eye out for, you know, when this does sunset at some point in the future, um, the transition back to regular gap. Yeah. And I can um, Nick, to that point as it relates to hedging,
1: just to, as one of the points that you mentioned, when companies no longer qualify for 848, either because the guidance sunsets or they no longer have mismatch related to live war with their hedged item or hedging instrument, there's a requirement to kind of update your hedge documentation to show how you're going to administer the hedging relationship going forward. And, you know, I don't think we have an insight yet, but, you know, a company will have to make sure that their hedging relationship post 848 is highly effective pursuant to the guidance and eight fifteen. So just one point I think is, is good for listeners to make sure that they understand is that there's kind of a an update once you elect an optional expedient, as I mentioned earlier, that you have to update your hedge documentation. When you're coming off of eight forty eight, you also have to update your hedge documentation to show how your hedging relationship will be administered in a post
2: eight forty eight world. So I think that was a good point. I just wanted to elaborate a little bit more Yep, yeah, no good point. I, I think Heather probably a second point that we wanted to highlight is around embedded derivatives. Um, so there there are some there there is some relief in topic eight four eight related to embedded derivatives, and specifically under the expedient and in, in the guidance, and it would not be required to reassess its original conclusions as to whether the contract contains an embedded derivative that's clearly and closely related to the host contract under topic eight fifteen. um but but just one thing to note here is that that relief um, does not apply to newly originated arrangements, uh, only existing arrangements. Um, and I think probably the last point to bring up here, uh, relates to reclassification of held maturity securities. So um, the guidance does provide that companies can make a one-time election prior to December 31st, 2022, to sell or reclassify securities out of held-to-maturity into available-for-sale or trading. But you know, just a reminder there that when if the company does do that, there are some obviously measurement considerations around the transition or the transfer. Uh, as well as some disclosures uh, related to a transfer or sale out of health to maturity.
0: Okay, great, thank you. And uh, that's a good lead into my next topic, which is talking about transition. And Brian wanted to turn back to you, uh, so you can help our listeners understand the various transitional requirements of the adoption of eight hundred and forty-eight.
1: The guidance was effective upon issuance, so it can be adopted now or in future periods. The guidance is also temporary, as Nick mentioned, and it sunsets on December 31st, 2022. So, yes, this is a bit unique, and it's unlike other accounting standards that the issues, but the key takeaway is that you have this window of time for which these optional expedients can be applied, and after December 31, 2022, you must revert to other applicable gaps. Um, some of the expedients that, if elected, however, will not expire on December 31, 2022, as it relates to hedge accounting. So some of these that will continue beyond the sunset date include expedients that deal with the methodology to recognize the earnings impact of the excluded component, the approach to measuring the change in hedged item in a fair value hedge when the designated benchmark interest rate is changed, and the ability to continue to apply certain expedients on the shortcut method for a fair value hedge. Uh, So the transition guidance is also a bit unique, and it basically calls for the effects of adopting the guidance to be recognized at the beginning of the period of adoption in accordance with topic 848. So what that means is basically if if you're applying an expedient, for example, not expedient requires you to modify certain items, maybe if you're adjusting the, the, the basis of your hedged item, fair value hedge, under one of these expedients. If the guidance allows you to take the, uh, kind of the adjustment through earnings, well, when you adopt the standard, that would all, that adjustment upon electing the optional expedient would be taken through earnings. So it's, it's different than other standards where sometimes you see like, you know, there's a methodology that causes the cumulative catch adjustments to the beginning retained earnings. This basically says once you adopt it, if you adopt it, then you account for it, present it as, as, as it would be required in Topic of the case.
0: Is there any strategy for the timing of when you may want to adopt the standard?
1: The standard is effective now, and it's optional, so you can adopt it as as you feel it's necessary. But I, I think there's a lot of, uh, I'll say, expedience or exceptions that uh, companies can take advantage of in the standard um, if they have hedging relationships they are going to be affected by this kind of discontinuance and shift away from LIBOR. So I would say that it's beneficial to to start looking at it sooner rather than later. But of course, you know. Companies will need to prioritize what what they allocate their resources to because especially in this day and age, there's a lot of other emerging issues that they need to focus on and this may not be top of mind for
0: everyone. Yeah, I think that makes sense and it's helpful. Um, and again, it's, I think just listening to the two of you. When companies are able to turn their attention to this, definitely delving into the standard and really understanding all these expedients will be important. They can understand how it applies to their particular circumstances. So, with that, Brian, Nick, really appreciate you coming in today, or I should say, joining me on the phone today for this discussion. And um, appreciate, as always, the insights. Thanks, Robin. Join me back here next Tuesday when we cover restructuring. We're seeing a lot of companies, unfortunately, move beyond temporary furloughs into longer term layoffs and restructurings. And so we thought we'd share some guidance around how to think about the accounting when these types of issues arise. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.